Tell me, what was your motivation to go into tropical medicine as a young physician? It was a, entirely a chance occurrence that when I was uh, following a perfectly conventional career in training as a respiratory physiologist and physician in uh, Moran Campbell's unit at uh, the Hammersmith, um, a former Hammersmith person, Eldred Parry, who had, um, was the Associate Professor of Medicine in Addis Ababa, contacted his previous um, colleagues in, in, in Hammersmith in cardiovascular and respiratory medicine because he'd encountered an extraordinary phenomenon which was important. Um, I won't bore you with lots of details, but it was a, a paradox that a disease that has to be treated with antibiotics because it has such a high case fatality, that's Lausborn relapsing fever, Borrelia recurrentis. If you treat it with antibiotics, you get a very severe or even fatal reaction triggered by the destruction of the, the bacteria, the spirochetes, under the influence of the, of the antibiotic. So on the one hand, you have to treat. On the other, patients are dying as a result of treatment. And their mode of death had some very interesting features which suggested to Eldred Parry that this might be solved, or at least the mechanism might be better understood by people who were respiratory physiologists. So I, as the only unmarried young registrar in Moran Campbell's unit, was given the chance to go to uh, Ethiopia to write my first grant application on my own to the Wellcome Trust and to go with a technician to work with some expatriate and Ethiopian doctors in, in Addis Ababa for a few months. So that was the start of it, really. So I don't think you could say that I, there was a long-term plan, um, a design that I should go and do tropical medicine. Was there a defined career pathway for young men like yourself, then? No, no, there were very few opportunities for a secure career in tropical medicine. I think most people who who went abroad just took a risk. They left the career ladder, as I did, and just headed off, hoped that after however long it was, a few months, a few years, a few decades, when they came back to Britain, they would find something to do. And it, it wasn't easy. I know a lot of people who, who had to accept very difficult career options when they got back. Of course, that's changed completely now. I think partly as a result of the Oxford model, because um, we've shown that if clinical research, biomedical research in tropical countries can be based in a UK university, people don't have to lose their UK affiliation. In fact, having the the university base in Britain is, is extremely valuable, not only for them, but for their counterparts, the African or Asian doctors, scientists with whom they work. Of course, you were a pioneer of this. The, uh, when you first went out as uh, a representative of Oxford University to Thailand in the late 1970s, you were actually the first person to go out from this university. Well, from Oxford, yes, certainly not a pioneer in British tropical medicine, because you have to remember that uh, Liverpool and London had a um, getting on for a hundred years of history of uh, whatever the initial colonial motivation for, for, for establishing these schools, which is very fascinating because they ended up producing enormous benefit, I think, to the endemic populations in the countries where they, they worked. But... Um, no, Oxford was very late on the scene, 
and it's very hard to find uh, much evidence of tropical medicine interest, although we did have some very distinguished people going through Oxford, such as Brian McGraith, an Australian clinician pathologist who was here in Oxford during the war, and later, when he moved to Liverpool, became a very distinguished figure in, in malaria, particularly a pioneer in looking at the pathophysiology of severe malaria. And he was also largely responsible for the foundation of the Faculty of Tropical Medicine in uh, Mahidon University in Bangkok, where we settled our first uh, overseas unit. Very famously, David uh, Wetherill said he thought the unit would probably last six months, but it's just um, recently, in 2009, celebrated its 30th anniversary. Well, I'm sorry David had such a pessimistic view. Certainly that wasn't shared by Mary and, and me because we, we'd given up quite senior NHS careers to, to move to Thailand and we were full of optimism, actually. We had a lot of advantages because uh, we weren't the pioneers in this particular collaboration. The Liverpool School had been there first from the very inception of the, um, the Faculty of Tropical Medicine and we had the great advantage of, of friends such as Professor Herbert Gillis, who acted as our invaluable liaison. That's what you need if you go to a, a foreign country where you're completely unknown. You need some patronage, you need someone to reassure the local people that these, uh, this lot are not going to ruin you, <laughs> that their intentions are generally good. There was a, uh, I suppose, a colonial aspect to tropical medicine. Is there still something of that, do you think, in, uh, in Britain? Yes, there, there is. And, you know, it's very difficult to, to um, express the, the gradient of opportunity of education between the first and the third world without seeming patronising. But um, I think that uh, one of the units which I was involved in setting up the the um, Nairobi Khalifi axis in Kenya, I think that is proving more brilliantly really than any other UK collaboration I know about, showing how this patronising colonial view can be emphatically reversed. And you'll be talking to Kevin Marsh, who's the, the director there, about this. I mean, identifying, encouraging, training and sustaining African biomedical scientists so that there's, they have a career independent of uh, constant support from, from the first world is, is what he's achieving there. We could call it medicine in the tropics or tropical medicine. Is it more of a way of life for people like yourself than say people who take up another discipline or another speciality in medicine? It ha does have some distinctive characteristics but I don't like to think of tropical medicine as being so different from mainstream medicine, particularly mainstream academic medicine. I think that is there, there's a danger in that, a sort of second-rate, oh, well, you can get away with doing this sort of work on that particular disease because it's a third-world disease. I think that's unacceptable. And I've always wanted to try and bring tropical medicine into the mainstream of uh, general medicine, and to try and uh, work towards scientific standards as high as those in other branches of medicine, because it obviously deserves it. We're, we're looking at diseases that affect very large numbers of people and um, very often are so little known 
that uh, a modest input, even of modest talent, may make a very large difference in the outcome for patients and in prevention. So in that way, the diseases you've been studying, or problems, health problems, are tractable in, in that particular way? Many of them are potentially tractable. You're on the steep part of the curve. A small input, a few, if they're correct ideas about mechanism, can lead to prevention and can have a disproportionate impact. And the contrast, when I left Hammersmith to work in, in Ethiopia, the contrast was between the enormous pressure of science being applied, very good science being applied to problems like uh, ischemic heart disease, where you were jostling with many other very gifted biomedical scientists to try and get in on the, the act. Clearly in that field, um, it would be difficult to make a, a large impact. Whereas if you w went to a really a very understudied disease in those days, like, like malaria or even asthma in the tropics, colossal opportunity. When you left the great tabernacle of scientific medicine, the Hammersmith, and uh, you went to Africa and then later to Thailand, what were the conditions, the working conditions for you like, say for example when you got to Bangkok? Well Thailand was, was extremely comfortable in comparison. I mean Africa I think it's, um, I, I certainly had an uncomfortable experience. It's working in rural Burma for example, but uh, Travelling in, in rural parts of Africa and trying to do um, opportunistic studies, microepidemiological studies in remote parts of Africa, do create logistical problems. But I, I think if you, you know a country like Thailand, well, when we arrived in Thailand, there, there'd been universities there, medical schools, since the end of the 19th century. There were some very sophisticated scientists there. They, they perhaps weren't as interested in so-called tropical diseases as we were, but certainly they, uh, they had a highly developed system uh, focused on, on diseases of much more obvious scientific interest. But I don't want to underplay the heroic aspect of, of, uh, of heading out into the Bundu and doing uh, difficult and courageous projects, but um, Bangkok was very comfortable, and rural Thailand, the provinces where we worked, because we were based in Bangkok, but uh, our work took us in all directions, to the far south, uh, to the far east of Thailand, and then to the, to the west. In these provincial areas, um, really, the conditions were extremely good for the, for the staff, and the infrastructure was there. On the question of your own physical well-being, did you have any near misses yourself uh, working in Africa or in Asia? I've been extremely lucky. I mean, I've been bitten by venomous snakes on two occasions, but that was to some extent self-induced because I was handling these snakes uh, as part of the research project and I was just careless. But um, that, was, that was frightening, I must say. But um, apart from that, I, uh, my family and I and my colleagues uh, in the, the different places where I've worked have been extremely lucky. Of course, we've encountered expatriates who've been less fortunate. Um, but um, no, I, I think that the, the idea that it's dangerous from a medical point of view, there are very well established sensible patterns of sensible behavior, sensible eating and drinking that uh, can protect one. You've become a world authority on snake bites, venom. 
where did this begin? Was it after you've been bitten yourself, or where did your fundamental interest in this arise from? No, well, I'm, I'm of course passionately interested in in venoms and venomous animals, all aspects, the zoological right through, and particularly to the to the medical. But um, I wouldn't want to overemphasise that because certainly in Britain, the very mention of snake bite put, relegates you to the charlatan, the the mad fringe, you know, and um, there is an aspect of working with venomous animals that I think brings the worst out of all of us. So I wouldn't want to overemphasize that. That is a private passion, you're quite right. And in the same way that David Weatherall has a private passion for thalassemia and other inherited red cell and haemoglobin abnormalities because he feels very deeply for the affected people of, a, of what has been a very neglected condition. Uh, I have the same passion about venomous animals, particularly snake bite, uh, but also scorpion stings and so on, because um, this, this aspect of hu human suffering, which exacts an enormous burden uh, in many rural communities, has been systematically neglected. And it really is still an object of ridicule, really, amongst conventional medical scientists. It's very unlikely you're going to have a serious conversation with someone who admits that they're interested in snake bites. <laughs> but to answer your question, it wasn't, again, it wasn't uh, a preconceived thing. I, I, I was always very interested in zoology, natural history. I was a passionate bird watcher as a, as a schoolboy. I could easily have become a zoologist. And I suppose that was, uh, that was one of the elements that made uh, toxinology the study of animal, animal and plant toxins, particularly fascinating. But it was just force of circumstance when I started working in, in uh, Zaria in the north of Nigeria in, in 1970. I was doing a very well-rounded job. I was uh, on the wards looking after patients. I was teaching and I was trying to do research. So it's sort of a perfect combination for an academic uh, medical person. But within the first few weeks of starting on the wards in Amado Bilu University Hospital in Zaria, I admitted as part of the general emergency take a series of uh, people bitten by snakes, different sorts of snakes. They did disastrously badly. Several of them died, lost their limbs. And um, this, I suppose, the most fundamental motivation to do research on something is when you find total ignorance and patients suffering very badly as a result of that ignorance. The usual recourse in situation like this is to turn to the wise local physician or person who knows the ropes. But um, I couldn't find any of them, and I couldn't find anything in the literature either. So in a way it was a marvellous opportunity to work something up from absolutely from the basics using elements of zoology and epidemiology, anthropology, as well as the detailed pathophysiology, the mechanism by which venom toxins were producing these life-threatening effects. People often think that one of the motivations for doctors is altruism. But do you think that the people who are in tropical medicine today, from Oxford, are they interested in public health or are they interested in the pursuit of science? That's, of course, very difficult. The study of human motivation is extremely complex. 
And I've often reached the point where, frankly, I don't mind why they're motivated to do the fact that they're doing something that clearly has such a beneficial outcome. I, I forget the motivation because which of us can really <laughs> examine ourselves that carefully? Of course, I was attracted out to Ethiopia initially. There was a scientific question to be answered. The altruism came at the bedside where you saw suffering people. We lost some patients as well. And uh, I mean, the feeling of frustration and failure and, and compassion is undoubtedly there. But who could say how much of it, how much of the other? The ultimate motivation for, for medical research is to benefit patients, is to prevent suffering. But along the way, you can very easily become totally consumed with fascination of the mechanisms involved, the more fundamental mechanisms. David Wetherill would say he was very fortunate to have chosen you to be the first representative of the union between the Wellcome Trust and Oxford University. But you also have a great skill in choosing people. Well, I, I don't think David chose me. I'm very flattered if he did. But you chose him. No, no, I didn't. It, was, it didn't happen like that at all. Um, I was extraordinarily lucky that when I went to Oxford as an NHS consultant, I wasn't an academic. Uh, it wasn't an academic post. In fact, several people, including David Weatherall and uh, Chris Burke, one or two other colleagues, warned me that the post I'd taken at Oxford would, would not be compatible with, with doing continuing my research career, which had started in Africa. But I was extraordinarily lucky, of course, to have someone like David as head of the Nuffield Department of Clinical Medicine because uh, he'd already got a well-developed sympathy for problems of the developing world while he was doing his national service in Singapore. And uh, he was extremely helpful throughout. But uh, no, it was, uh, I'd, I'd intended to settle, uh, to try and settle in English medicine after spending seven years in Nigeria. I just got married. But I became restless, even in this highly privileged environment of Oxford with marvellous medical students. And some of my students have, are now absolutely at the top echelon of British medicine. Um, and marvellous colleagues, very interesting British-style practice and an opportunity to, to train myself in infectious diseases, a new speciality. Despite all that, I missed the challenges of the tropics. So I wanted to get back to the tropics and I was extremely lucky to find someone sympathetic as, as head of academic medicine in Oxford. Where do you think the new Wetherills and Nick Whites are going to come from and David Warrells? Well, one of the, the very good things that happened in Oxford as a result of the development of the tropical network is that from being, as you've uh, said earlier, an unknown speciality, if, if tropical medicine is a speciality. Uh, over the years, because of, of our activities in different tropical continents, you know, initially in Asia and then in, uh, in Africa and uh, Latin America, Papua New Guinea and so on, Oxford medical students have a colossal opportunity to sample the excitement, the achievement uh, the pleasure of, of working in tropical countries and being challenged by tropical diseases. So it seems to me that over the years, and I may be exaggerating, my impression is that now uh, amongst the brightest of our students, 
scientifically the brightest of our students are attracted into working in, the, in, the trop in tropical countries. And not just in Oxford either, We've, uh, our, our network, our tropical network, has um, involved people from not only from lots of different universities in Britain, but from, from Holland, from other countries, Switzerland, France and so on. So your question, where will the, the David Weatheralls of the future come from, I think that um, we've, we've already attracted to the Oxford Tropical Network some of the most talented biomedical scientists of their generations. And uh, that must be very good for, for, lead, for finding outstanding leaders of the future.